Hi, welcome. Thanks for being here this morning. We are making our way back again through the book of Acts. If you want to turn to Acts 12, that will be our chapter this morning. Has anybody ever heard of uh, the Moravian movement back in the 1700s? You guys ever heard of the Moravians? Well, I'm going to... All right, Sally, thank you. The Moravian movement started with a man named Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Quite a name. I kind of like that name. Nicholas, I mean. In 1722, he was a very wealthy man, and uh, he had a lot of immigrants, uh, Christian immigrants coming in from Bohemia and Moravia, and he decided to open up his vast expansion of lands and allow them to create a Christian community on his land. He was a believer himself. He had a heart for these people who had been displaced and wanted to help them. This community it grew very rapidly, obviously, um, with the Lord's hand in it. It was known as the Hermhut, and it meant under the Lord's watch. Five years into this community being established, 24 men and 24 women, about the size of our church in number, they covenanted together to spend an hour each day in scheduled prayer. Whether it was one person or many, every hour of the day, day and night, would be covered in prayer. So they joined together to pray 24 hours a day, at least one person every day. Days passed, months passed, and decades passed, and it never ceased. It never ceased. In fact, the prayer meeting itself went uninterrupted every hour of the day for over 100 years. 100 years they prayed. But six months into this movement of unceasing prayer, Zinzendorf suggested to the group that they begin praying that the Lord raise up missionaries to be sent out from amongst themselves to all over the world, Greenland, the West Indies, Turkey, and elsewhere. The next day, 26 people from their group came forward to volunteer. 26. Now, look at that. 26 people in one day volunteered to spend the rest of their life somewhere else. To be missionaries. On August 18, 1732, two men, the first two missionaries that they commissioned were sent off. But not before quite the worship service. The service included over 100 hymns sung. So filled with the Spirit, so full of prayer at that point, they were so thankful and excited to serve the Lord, the worship service and sending them off sung over 100 hymns. These men reached the West Indies in December of that year, several months after they were sent. And it began what was labeled as the Golden Decade of Moravian Missions. During the first two years of that decade, 22 missionaries perished, were killed. Two missionaries were imprisoned. Sounds kind of like Acts 12 that we're going to be in this morning. In all, over 70 Moravian missionaries came out of that group of 600 inhabitants. 
which at the time was unparalleled. By the time, if you've heard of William Carey, he's known as the father of modern missions. By the time he came and went down to India, there had already been over 300 Moravian missionaries sent. They were way ahead of their time. In fact, it was the Moravian missionaries that strongly influenced John and Charles Wesley to faith. And it was the Moravian missionary movement that had a strong uh, presence in the Great Awakening that hit Europe and America in the 1800s. The missions movement itself that would lead thousands of people to Christ and send hundreds of missionaries onto the field began with a prayer meeting of 48 people. Pretty cool. It's not impossible, but it's seldom experienced today. And the reason's obvious. We don't give ourselves in this way to the Lord anymore. But the Lord is ready and he's waiting to do great things if his people would humble themselves and seek him. We're going to be in Acts 12. Well, as the title of our sermon suggested, several themes are in this chapter, and they're all important. Persecution returns to the church. Deliverance is seen. Magnificent deliverance and continued growth. Despite all that happens to the church, the first apostle, James, is going to be martyred. Peter is waiting his death sentence, but is going to be delivered. Those who put their hands out against the church, God judges. And the church and movement of Christ continues to grow. It's a wonderful, wonderful chapter that we're going to consider a lot. So let's read verses 1 through 5 together and begin considering what God has for us this morning. Before we read verse 1 of chapter 12, if you look there, verse 1 says, About that time... Let's refresh ourselves since it's been a couple weeks, what time he's referring to. Look in chapter 11 with me, verse 27. Now it says, In these days, this is in Antioch, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. About that time. So the same time this famine is spreading, and Paul and Barnabas are sent to Jerusalem with this love offering, at that same time, Herod the king, verse 1, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, that's Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made. To God by the church. Let's pray. Father, we want to stop and just ask that your spirit 
would begin a work in us, Father, to awaken us to the great need that we have of protracted, of stretched out prayer to you. And Father, so often we, in our lives, we don't see the need for prayer, and that's, that's telling of the symptoms that we're in, because there is so much need for prayer. Father, I, I want to ask for waypoints specifically. I don't want to focus on other churches, Father, that you would awaken our church to this great need. That you'd, as the scripture says, and we're going to see later, would fill us with a spirit of prayer. Father, that you'd awaken our hearts, alarm our minds. Father, not only to petition for our own souls, but those of others. Father, that your kingdom and glory might continue as it did in this chapter in the church. A severe test of faith came upon them. And it was because, Father, they had already been ingrained in the habit of prayer that they were able to endure it and see the victory won. Father, discipline us in this way. Teach us from your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. James is murdered. This is James, the brother of John, if you remember. Sons of Zebedee. There's several James in the book of Acts. There was two that were named James that were apostles. This was one, and then there's James, son of Alphaeus, who's still alive. And then there was James, the brother of Jesus, who became one of the leaders in the Jerusalem church. So this James is James, the brother of the apostle John, sons of Zebedee. While he's not the first martyr in the church to this point, he is the first apostle martyred. In Mark 10, if you remember... It was James and, and John who actually sent their mother to be the spokesman for them. They were a little afraid to do it themselves, I think. They sent their mother to ask Jesus, hey, grant to us whatever we wish and ask. And he says, what is it? We want to sit next to you in your glory. And there was there in that passage that Jesus said, it's not for me to grant that. He says, are you able to drink the cup I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism I will be baptized? And they said, yes, we are. Not really understanding what that meant. Jesus said, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with that baptism. But to sit at my right hand or the left is not for me to determine. Jesus had told James and John, you will be baptized with my baptism. That baptism of suffering. That cup of wrath. John, of course, if you remember, he was the only one of the twelve apostles who was not martyred. For his faith. Though he was persecuted, he saw his brother killed, and then he was exiled to the island of Patmos. And it was on that island that he received the revelation. And then afterward, he was released in old age and went to Ephesus where he died. But he went through much, and he saw his own brother become the first apostle to be martyred. Let's identify who this Herod is, because there's also several Herods in the Scripture. This is Herod Agrippa I. He was the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the ruling king when Christ was born. It was Herod the Great's command who said, once he figured out that the, the Magi had tricked him, right, and didn't tell him where this king was born, it was Herod the Great who commanded that every male child in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas, two years and younger should be marked, uh, killed, slaughtered. 
So there was a long-standing hatred for the Herods with the Jewish bloodline. They were violent men. They were also Edomites. If you read the book of Obadiah or, or anywhere in the Old Testament, the Edomites were not well-liked. In fact, Obadiah predicted their complete destruction, which happened. There no longer remains any Edomites on the earth today. Herod was of that line. But it would also be Herod Agrippa's, this Herod Agrippa's son, Herod Agrippa II, whom Paul would address later in the book of Acts, in Acts 25, when he's about to be sent off to Rome. He'd appealed to Caesar, remember that? He appealed to Caesar with his case. Festus said, okay, then to Caesar you'll go. But before Paul sailed off, there was two years waiting. And during that time, Herod Agrippa II, the son of this Herod, came down and Paul witnessed to him. And his tone toward that Herod Agrippa II makes you think that this son was very close to becoming a Christian. And I have the thought, this is my thought, take it or leave it. Herod Agrippa II would have been a child during this account and would have known these happenings with the Jews and would have witnessed how the Christians responded to the death of one of their own at his father's hands. And he didn't turn up so much like his great-grandfather and father did. Moreover, James, back to James, he's probably the older brother of John. I don't know if you've ever noticed this in Scripture, but James is always mentioned first. Remember that? Probably indicates that James was the older brother of John. And moreover, it was Peter, James, and John who the Lord always took the extra mile in discipleship. It was those three that formed Jesus' inner circle. Peter of those three obviously emerged as the leader. But James was a significant figure, not only in the early church, but in the group of apostles themselves. And so his death would have been very significant to them. Very significant. It's interesting to me that there's not more about him in Scripture, given his place of prominence. But we can, we can definitely conclude his death being one of the three chief apostles was a significant blow to the church. I think, this is again my opinion, it's not stated explicitly. Herod the king, we're told, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So James is not the only one who's laid hold of. And we're not told why Herod laid hands on him. My guess is because the Gentile world is now converting to the Savior. The Romans didn't care much about the church while it was a Jewish movement, right? The state has been hands-off up to this point, and they've left this issue to the Jews themselves, and we've already seen the Jews kill their own who convert. But now Gentiles are coming to faith, which is a threat to the state. And now we see Herod intervening and laying violent hands, killing the Christians. It's an escalation of the persecution that now exists everywhere. It's one thing to face persecution in interreligious circles. But when the state who has authority and control over you intervenes, persecution gets much worse. This is state-sponsored persecution for the first time become normal, unfortunately. So I think that's why Herod probably laid these violent hands and killed James, the brother of John. But there's also a political reason why he then moves to Peter. Verse 3 tell us, tells us, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, 
he proceeded to arrest Peter also. That's a political move. We've already seen Herod and the Jews, the line of Herod, were not friendly to each other. Nonetheless, it was in Herod's political interest and self-interest to keep a peaceful environment over the lands he ruled because Rome would have taken his kingship. They would have removed him. And so for political reasons, when he saw that the death of James pleased the Jews, he saw opportunity to make an alliance with these Jews and create some peace. And he took it. So he arrested Peter also. But there's also a ceremonial dilemma. He arrested him during the days of unleavened bread. Now, if you remember unleavened bread, it was the feast that was celebrated after the Passover. It was celebrated for seven days. And it would have been a desecration for the Jews to have a murder, such as Peter's, during that celebration. Herod understood these Jewish laws, and so he waited to actually carry out the execution of Peter. Verse 4, it says, When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending that after the Passover to bring him out to the people in order to kill him. The four squads of soldiers. This was a common practice for Romans who would be guarding a very important political prisoner. What it entailed was this. There would be two soldiers chained to Peter's arms, one on each side, and there would be two soldiers guarding the door. They would take six-hour shifts so that at a 24-hour interval, the prisoner would always have contact with two Roman soldiers and be under guard with the other two. Very serious situation for Peter. In fact, Peter probably understood just by that alone Herod's intentions to kill him. Why so much? That seems excessive. That seems excessive. Well, if you remember, the angel of the Lord had already let out the apostles one other time and said, go back to the square and preach. The Jews, I think, were behind this and had informed Herod, hey, these men have escaped before. Put them under lock and key. So Herod does the maximum amount he can do. He has Peter chained to two men, one on each arm, and two men guarding the door. So Peter's there for over a week in prison. It's the time of the Passover. In verse 5, though, it says, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. The one spiritual weapon and force we see employed against such a move was passive by the church. Do you get that? Here they're laying violent hands on people, killing them with the sword and imprisoning them. And what's the church's one response? To pray earnestly. This is important. Um, I'm going to wait to cover this spiritual weapon in, in just a minute, but their natural, almost like breathing response was to begin to pray. Now it's important to note, and I'm going to cover this, like I said, the church had already been in a habit of prayer by the time this happened. Consider what that means. Most of us wait till the crisis comes upon us, right? And then we begin to try and conjure up persevering prayer and we don't do very well. When the crisis came this time, they'd already been praying. They'd been a praying church. It's important to consider. Several things we can learn from this. First, I want you to notice in this account, the satanic inspiration. Turn with me very quickly 
to 2 Corinthians, if you will. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And there's other verses that support this later in the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul talks about the nature of the spiritual and demonic influences that happen in these kind of circumstances all over the world. And we must as a church train ourselves to discern this very point. Because so often what happens is when people like Herod lay hands on Christians and kill them, we hate Herod. But God loves Herod. He loves him. How do we keep our hearts free to do that? We understand that he is under satanic inspiration. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we have the account, if you remember in the first book of Corinthians chapter 5, a man had been sleeping with his father's wife. Paul chastises the church for not dealing with the situation, says you need to remove that man from fellowship. He'll ruin the whole. They do. The man repents, however, and the church won't let him back into fellowship. So Paul has to chastise them again, say, he's done what you asked. Bring him back in. You don't want to leave him out for the wolves. Essentially, that's paraphrased. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Let me find it. It says, so that we would... Uh, let's read verse 10. I hate coming in the middle of a sentence like that. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. Church, this is so important to understand. Satan is a schemer and he's a liar. And he's very good. And his intent is always to trip up any believer in any church who is proclaiming the gospel. Who is walking in truth and who is walking in holiness. He hates you. And he is setting traps, he's scheming on how to destroy your faith. And how to discredit and blaspheme the name of Christ. He does this incessantly. Turn to the book of Ephesians with me, I have it referenced there. Ephesians chapter 6. Paul again makes it clear who it is that we're actually battling. The church's battle is not against Herod Agrippa. It's not against the Jews. Christ died to save them. Who is it we're battling? In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You can get, when you start looking at this passage, understanding the satanic influence behind it, you start to see how wicked Satan is. He can cause mischief in the hearts of men so that Herod will kill Jews and Jews will kill Romans. And then he'll turn it around and bring them together so that they all kill Christians. He hates everyone, Christian and non-Christian. And he seeks to destroy everyone. And he does it through lies and schemes and deceit. And when you read this passage in light of this, you start to get a different view. It's important to recognize the spiritual, satanic inspiration behind this. It is true that we cannot separate people from their sin. We are guilty and we sin willfully. And God holds us personally responsible. But it is equally true that when we are lost, we are under demonic control. I was shocked when I first came to Christ to read in 1 John when he wrote, The whole world 
lies in the sway of the wicked one. That blew my mind. The whole world? Yes, the whole world. You can't separate yourself from your sin, but you also recognize its inspiration. It is devious, it is dark, and it comes straight from the heart of Satan, who suggests for you to do whatever it is you did. Paul also said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, he says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of God. Secondly, we can learn this, that the Christian is not of this world. John 17, which I've referenced there, turn with, with me real quick there. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is Him, as our high priest, interceding for us. This is important. We're talking in the context of prayer in, in Acts 12. Let's look and see how Jesus prayed. In verse 14 of John 17, He said this, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. It is so important for us to recognize that persecution like this when it comes is only an affirmation for us that we are not of this world. If we were of this world, they would love us. The fact that the world can turn on you and hate because you are a disciple and follower of Christ should be an encouragement. Why? Because it means I'm His. I suffer like He did. Paul used this very argument to the Galatian church in chapter 6. He said, do I not bear in my body the marks of Christ? Yes. Am I not an apostle? Yes. How do you know? Look at my scars. That's what he appealed to. Look at my scars. The Christian is not of this world. The death of James, the arresting of Peter, and those other Christians who Herod laid violent hands on did not deter the church. That's the great ending of this passage. It didn't distract them because they'd already settled the fact, this is my lot as a Christian. But praise God, it means I have a better hope. The Christian is not of this world. We can also learn from this passage that persecution, like I said, is an accepted reality for the disciple. Paul said it this way in 2 Timothy. He said, everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be. They will be. doesn't say the degree to which we will suffer, but it promises that we will. If this is an issue in your heart, then you need to be consecrated to the Lord in it. When we come to faith, we are crucified with Him and we no longer live. My life is hidden with Christ and God. But moving forward in this passage, back in Acts chapter 12, let's read verse 6. It says, now when Herod was about to bring him out, so this is the night before. On that very night, Peter was sleeping between the two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. The angel struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. 
and the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your clothes or your sandals. And he did so, and he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Now when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. And when day came and there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter, after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. I love this angelic jailhouse break. It would be fun to write a song with that title. The very night... In fact, before Peter's scheduled execution, he's visited, and we find Peter asleep. Now, some commentators play off of how Peter, if you remember in the garden, during Jesus' hours of agony before his crucifixion, Peter had fallen asleep and was chastised. And they think that Peter's just kind of carrying along in that same vein of not being alert. I don't quite think that's what, what happened. Um, this is the, the second time now, as, as I've already referenced, that Peter would have been strung, uh, sprung from jail. Um, but I think what's happened here is something that, that actually, let's go to the next slide. I referenced it there. Or maybe it's the next slide. Yeah, sorry. If you remember, go back to John chapter 21 with me. I think what's happened is that Peter's actually at peace, very similarly to the way Jesus was asleep on the boat during the great storm, because of faith. Faith in what Jesus had said to Peter right before he was taken up. In John chapter 21, now to be sure, when Jesus said this to Peter, Peter didn't get it and fought back against it. But it was true, nonetheless. <clears throat> in John chapter 21, after, after Jesus has exhorted Peter to tend to his sheep and feed his sheep, in verse 18 he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, and he's speaking to Peter here, When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you 
where you do not want to go. Verse 19, this he said to show by what kind of death he, that is Peter, was to glorify God. And then after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So he doesn't give Peter the exact day, but he does say when you're old. Peter's not yet old. Now, is there anybody who's maybe around 50 in here? You're not old, right? Okay, good. (laughs) So Peter, I think, is at peace. I think he's expecting something. So when the angel comes, Peter, we're told, doesn't know it was real in verse 9, back in Acts 12. In fact, Peter doesn't really come to his senses until he's passed through the entire prison, past the guards, through the gate which opened by itself and is out on some random street. And when the angel leaves him, that's when he wakes up and says, Wow, where am I? And he comes to his senses. He gives God the glory. In in verse 11 he says this, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. This is a... One more example after example after example in the book of Acts of God providentially coming over the situation. We're going to summarize this in a minute, but I I was telling someone earlier, I began reading this week uh, a biography on George Washington. I've never read anything on him besides what's been presented in our history books. So I want to learn about him. And what made George Washington... Famous was the first battle he ever encountered. He was a major at the time, or maybe a lieutenant colonel, a young man in his 20s who'd already shown exemplary character and ability, and he sent to a battle with the French. And in this battle, they were slaughtered. It was an absolute massacre. Every officer was killed except him, and hundreds of his own men were slaughtered. But at the end of the battle, as he rode back and forth on the front line, He found after the battle, he had four bullet holes through his jacket, not hit one time. He had two horses shot out from under him, got up and kept riding. And he told a friend in a letter afterward, he said, there's no way I should be alive. It is only by divine providence that I am here. He ascribed it to divine providence. Over and over and over, God will superintend over circumstances that we think should lead to our death. And God will deliver us miraculously, even today. Even today, He does it here with Peter. He's done it all throughout history. Until the day of our death comes, nothing can stop it. God is over us. It's an interesting testament that Herod did not know the power of God. It speaks to his pride. He'd been told, I believe, by the Jews that these men have already escaped prison one time. We don't know how. Put them under four squads, and Herod does thinking that that's sufficient, not knowing the power of God. Herod's at rest, intends to kill Peter the next morning, goes to get Peter and finds out where is he. And no one can give an answer. So his response is to kill the soldiers. Still not knowing the power of God. It reminds me of what Psalm chapter 2 verse 1 to 3 says. It says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Very telling in this situation. Herod plotted in vain with the Jews and God got glory over them. Why do you plot in vain? 
So what does Peter do? He goes to the house of Mary, we're told, who was the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. This is interesting. Why did Peter go to Mary's house? We're not told. So again, take it or leave it. I think it's because Mary's house was a frequent place of prayer. It was a frequented meeting place that he knew the believers would have been gathered at. I'm reading into this, I know. But I don't know of any other reason why Peter would go there. He goes to Mary's house and he finds this large group praying. We, we're told that a, a girl named Rhoda is the one who answered the door. She's a servant of Mary. This also tells us that Mary was probably a very wealthy woman. She had servants and she had a house that could accommodate this group. Both things were not common to people back then. And we're also told that she's the mother of John Mark, who we'll talk about here in a minute. So Peter gives them the news and he tells them to tell James... Now this James, it could be James the son of Alphaeus, one of the twelve apostles, or James the son of our brother of Jesus. I think it's James the brother of Jesus. Because nothing is ever said about James the son of Alphaeus. James the brother of Jesus is going to become a prominent figure, especially in Acts 15. He's also the writer of the book bearing his name in our scripture. I think he'd already come to faith and risen uh, in leadership at that point. So he wants James as well as the other disciples to know what the Lord has done. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't want to encourage your faith seeing how the Lord has delivered us? What does man have to fear is the message. What can man do to us? Nothing. Nothing at all. But there's also a bit of comic relief in verses 14 and 15. Rhoda, simply hearing Peter's voice, fails to open and let Peter in. I love that. <laughs> Leaves him outside. Here's a convicted prisoner, just been jailbreak, standing in the middle of the street, and Rhoda leaves him standing out there. <laughs> we can forgive her over her excitement for sure. But, but what's interesting to me nonetheless is that they didn't believe her. Here they're praying for Peter... He's standing outside and they didn't believe. <laughs> it's an interesting, uh, interesting dynamic. Well, what can we learn from this? Most importantly, we can learn what the power of prayer is really about. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Very quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You can also reference Philippians chapter 1 verse 18 through 20. Well, we'll read that one too. If we've got time. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 18... Through 20. Paul says this, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11. I just was like, yeah, it's not the verse. 8 through 11, the next verses are 18 through 20. 2 Corinthians 1, 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. Now what's He say to the church? That statement He just said is an absolute statement of God's sovereignty. Right? God will deliver us. 
But does he leave out man's responsibility to pray nonetheless? No. Verse 11. You must also help by prayer. So that many will give thanks on our behalf. For the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. It's exactly what just happened in Acts 12. Peter relays to the church and all those who've been praying what God has done. Why? So that many will give thanks to the glory of God. It brings the church into unity and fellowship with the sovereign will of God is what it does. God does not rule sovereignly over us in an uh, automatonic way. We're not robots. His sovereignty is sure. His will is absolute. But He sovereignly told us to pray so that our will is brought into union and alignment with His. That's a difficult question. That's why I bring it up. Why pray if God is sovereign and knows all things? Well, because He's told us to. And it's not so much for His sake, but for ours. We are told to walk in faith. And it is through prayer that our faith is not only affirmed, but strengthened and encouraged. That's why we pray. And that's why Peter tells the church, your prayers are not in vain. Look at Philippians with me. Chapter 1. I love this passage. Philippians chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. Paul writes this, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know... Now listen to this. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's writing from prison. Peter just been delivered from prison. I know that through your prayers and the Spirit of Christ, I'll be delivered. Verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. We're going to talk more about prayer and the role of prayer. So I'll leave it till then. But we can also learn, secondly, that the schemes of men will not stand against the power of God. It does not matter how powerful a nation might be. Why do you plot in vain against the Lord? Nothing hinders the will and work of God. In fact, Jesus said it this way in the Gospels. The Word of God is unchained. You might chain the messenger. You cannot change the Gospel. What do we have to fear? If it is for God, if it's God's will for us to survive, we will survive. But that brings us to a third consideration, the will of God. Why did James die and Peter live? That's a question we probably don't have the answer to. You can ask it. But if it is God's will for you to go and it's His time, it's your time. If it's God's will for you to live, you'll live. If you were to go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. When Jesus had just told Peter, you're going to be taken away when you're old and taken somewhere you don't want to go. We didn't read Peter's response. He says, well, well, how's this guy going to go? He's pointing to the Apostle John. He says, if it's, his, if it's my will for him to remain, what's that to you? You go and follow me. <laughs> That's what we do, though. I don't know why God allowed James to die. There's some things we're going to point out here in a minute. I think we can conclude. 
But we do know, obviously, several things from letting Peter live. One, the church was strengthened in faith. They were taught to pray in a persevering manner. And obviously, he's not done with using Peter as an apostle who would go to Rome, inform John Mark, and John Mark would write the Gospel of Mark for us to have in our scripture. Why are we not more courageous in light of this? Why are we not more courageous in the work of the Lord? It's a question we need to ask ourselves. If we truly believe, as Acts has continually reported to us, that God is over even men, why do we walk in the fear of men so much? Hebrews chapter 13 quotes the book of Joshua. It says this, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Literally, you could translate that first statement, I will never leave you nor forsake you, this way. This is how it's written in the Greek. I will never, no, never, no, never leave you. Do you believe that? If you answered yes, don't walk in the fear of men. We can confidently say, what can men do to me? Nothing. I will never, no, never, no, never leave you. This is so important. Not only is it so important, it is so freeing to you and to me. When you cease to walk in the fear of men, it's freeing. Because our life is not our own anymore. It's, it's the Lord's. Paul would say that to the Philippian church, right? I know whom I believed in, and I'm convinced he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him. It's his. What can man do to me? We are his. We are his workmanship. And we are to be used in the purpose of building his kingdom that's why we're here. Whether you're building that kingdom in your place of employment or somewhere else, your purpose here is to be used in the kingdom of God. That's your purpose. There's always going to be the satanic scheme to cause you to fear men and not be a part of that work. Be aware of that. The fear of men is a quiet evil that kills every church that succumbs to it. It kills every church that succumbs to it. Let's move on. Because I've got some good stuff I want to get to. So the death of Herod, verse 20 through 23. Now Herod was angry. So this is a political situation that didn't have anything to do with what we're looking at. He was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And so they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, who was the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. So for pragmatic reasons, they wanted peace. We're starving. Not because we like you or are aligned with your purposes. We want peace because we're hungry. On verse, verse 21, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give the glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Herod's robes, we're told, were put on by him as he stood before the people in Caesarea. And if you've been to Israel... There's still a, the colonnade or the, the stadium 
where Herod would have given this, as well as where uh, Paul would have stood and given his defense before the kings, King Agrippa, this man's son, and Festus. I've been there. It's beautiful. And I can, in my mind, see how this would have taken place. Herod's robes were literally made out of silver. So that when he came out in the presence of the people and the, the sun shone on him, he would glitter with brilliant light. And as he gave this oration to the people, they started yelling, You have the voice of a God and not of a man, flattering him. And he took it. He accepted their worship. He accepted their praise. Again, not knowing the Lord. Psalm 29.2 says this, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. And worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. What Herod does was ascribing glory to his own name. And he worshiped himself through the praise of men. And what does the Lord do? He strikes him down. In fact, Herod serves in this account as a type of antichrist. Exalting himself to be God and receiving the praise of men. We're warned against it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That this is exactly what the antichrist will do. He will exalt himself in the temple of God and receive the praise and worship of men so as to be worshipped as God. 1 John chapter 2 tells us this, that there are already many antichrists in the world. Herod was one of those types. And I'm wondering if John had Herod in mind, Herod being the murderer of his own brother. He'd seen Herod in his pompous glory. This is a severe passage. We have seen an outpouring of God's mercy toward repentant, humble sinners. And it would be easy for us to forget that God is also a wrathful judge. Every person has broken His law. And every person stands condemned and accused by it. And He is an awful, strict, just judge. And He just exercised judgment on Herod. He strikes him down, and he dies a gruesome, ugly death. He's eaten by worms. It probably wasn't uh, something where Herod's giving us oration, he falls down dead, he's eaten by worms. That's not what happened. But he was afflicted in some way, and a short time later he died. And part of that death, we're not sure what happened, but part of that death included being eaten with some kind of parasite, parasitic worms. It's, it's a gruesome gruesome reality that Herod finally came to know you are not God you are not more powerful than God and your schemes against me will not prevail and I will show you I have the power over you and he did we'll talk about this more in just a minute but let's finish reading the chapter verse 24 and 25 but the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. I want you to read the last uh, verse 23 and 24 as though it was one sentence. Herod was eaten by worms and breathed his last, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Do you see what Luke's just done? He's contrasted for us a reality we need to get. Herod, who exalted himself against God and opposed God, came to a gruesome death, but the Word of God kept thriving. And so did the Christians. That's the point. That one little word, but, in verse 24, but the Word of God. Luke is intentionally trying to get us to see you cannot stop the Gospel. 
Even a king will succumb to the Lord, a king such as Herod. In verse 25, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they completed their service. And they brought with them John, whose other name was Mark. Herod had taken James from him. What does God do? Gives him John Mark. You see that? Again, think this is intentional by Luke writing this. Barnabas and Saul, who were in Jerusalem during this time, head back to Antioch. But they don't head back with the same number. John's with them. John would become an important companion on the first missionary trip. We're going to see that a split happens. Barnabas and Mark go one way. Paul and Silas go another way. But later in Paul's life, we see John Mark is restored to Paul. So that he's useful to him for service. This is so important. I love these last two verses. So simple in their wording. yet so profound in their truth. It solidifies the whole message of history. You cannot stop the kingdom of God. It will prevail. Bring death. Bring what you will. They are victorious. We see it depicted even in the, the book of Revelation, which John would write. Those in the end times who oppose God and exalt themselves against Him are going to be what? Cast into the lake of fire. Those who are His children, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, are going to what? Enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. The victory is solidified. It's what Luke is saying is now. Even if we suffer momentarily now, our hope is sure. Our victory is won. John Mark also, it's interesting, I didn't say this. Peter actually calls John Mark his son in his own epistles. In 1 Peter. Very similar to the way Paul called Timothy his son. That's how intricate Mark would become. We're told after this that Peter, uh, we're told in, in verse, uh, where is it, 17, that Peter had departed went to another place. We don't know where Peter went. But we know at some point in the future, John, Mark, and Peter hook up. And history tells us that John, Mark, was with Peter when Peter was in Rome, witnessing to the Romans there. And we also know that it was Peter the Apostle who was John, Mark's source in writing his gospel. So that had apostolic authority with it. So John, Mark, and Peter became very, very, very close. As well as John, Mark becoming very, very helpful to the Apostle Paul in his missionary journey. So James is taken. The Lord raises up John, Mark, and gives him to the church. One is taken, another steps up. That's how it works. You cannot stop Christ. So let's summarize here what we can learn. Several points. One, we're not of the world, but we are in it, right? We've already talked about that. But with the emphasis now being, we are in the world. Jesus said this in, the, in Matthew chapter 5. We are to be salt and we are to be light. We are to uphold the truth. It's so important to see that. It is so easy to be tempted, and we're going to consider this next, but so easy to be tempted... When crises and persecutions come, to pull back. To not be so explicit in your claims of the gospel, right? It's very easy to be tempted to do that. That's not what happens in Acts 12. They keep preaching, the gospel keeps growing, and the church keeps spreading. And they're strengthened. The more the church is persecuted, the stronger it grows. We are to be in the world. We are to be an influence in the world. 
And the world desperately needs to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Remember, it is satanic blindness why they can't see it. God has supernaturally given us weapons to break through that darkness. Let's use them. Let's use them. The second and third points there. There we go. I want to read together. First, don't wait for a crisis to start praying. This summarizes the whole point. This is usually what we do. We start praying once the crisis hits. The better reality is we need to discipline and persevere in prayer now. So that when real trials come, you can endure it. The word pray there, um, used in this passage, if you look back at Acts 12, verse 5. I told you I'd talk about that. Earnest prayer was given for him to God. That word earnest, we get our word tension from it. Things are held in tension. And the idea is this. We don't allow slack to enter in. That's why this word is also um, sometimes translated this way. uh, Persevering or continuing is the idea. So many of us, if we were confronted with a crisis of this magnitude, we wouldn't have the perseverance built up in prayer to be able to keep the slack, to keep the tension. We'd fail. And that's the truth. We need to discipline ourselves in the spiritual disciplines, not only the Word, but in prayer also. In fact, if you go to small groups tonight, almost every question deals with prayer. And I'm intentionally trying to probe us Because we're prayerless people. One of the questions I didn't put in there, I'll ask you now. Would you consider prayerlessness a sin? It's a good question. So we don't want to wait for a crisis to start praying. Secondly, we don't believe that a crisis shuts down the work of God. And that is a temptation that will come. It's a temptation that will come. In fact, in God's economy, a crisis is very often the thing that begins the work of God, not hinders it. If you believe Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Crises are some of the best things that can happen to a Christian because it starts fresh work in the people of God. It's good. A crisis does not shut down the work of God. With that mentality, let me ask you this. What are we afraid of? What are we afraid of? Nothing. Nothing. I love that God is such a God that He's over crises and over them in such a way that He uses it for good because He's also a good God. Literally, we can conclude everything that happens to me, every circumstance I find myself in is for a good purpose. It's for a good purpose. Satan will try to tempt us to believe otherwise, to question God, to stumble in faith, to quit walking with Him, and that's just what He wants. Understand what a crisis is. It's an opportunity for the Lord. Lastly there, and then I'll conclude, out of Romans 11... Paul says this. I'll summarize it for you. He says this. 
in talking about how God basically set the Jewish nation aside for the time being and opened up the way for the Gentiles because it was the Jews who rejected their Messiah. So he's turning to the Gentiles. Paul writes this to the Romans. He says, Behold then the kindness and the severity of God. Kindness to you who believe, severity toward those who don't. Our gospel has got to be balanced. It is a fearful thing, the writer of Hebrews says, to fall into the hands of the living God. For people who continue to persist in unbelief, it's a terrifying thing. And the law was given to arrest our hearts and say, wake up and look in the mirror. God has got charges against you. But he's given us his son to set us free. He's paid the penalty. But the severity of God does not need to be ignored. It's a terrifying thing to neglect that. I want to, pray, or I want to read some passages, and I don't do this very often. And you might get bored with me. I joke with our leaders how uh, one of my goals, whether you want it or not, is I want to make us a reading people. If you've ever studied church history you'll have probably heard about the Welsh Revivals. There's a period uh, in the mid-1800s where God did incredible work in Ireland, Scotland, England, where literally whole towns were converted to Christ. I want to read you a little bit about it so you can see how it started. Because it's Acts chapter 12. It started with two men... I'll read this. It said that the work commenced chiefly by the instrumentality of Humphrey Jones and David Morgan. Humphrey Jones was a Wesleyan. David Morgan was a Calvinist. <laughs> Interesting. And I'm not going to read this part, but, but uh, Mr. Morgan, the Calvinist, was dogmatic and didn't want anything at first to do with him. But he gave in. Mr. Jones had emigrated to the United States and witnessed much of the revival work in that country. And he was anxious to return to his own place and witness a similar outpouring of God's Holy Spirit there. He sa it says this, We are told that he addressed his sermons to professing Christians, chiefly with a view, now listen to this, to rouse them to greater life and activity, maintaining that an awakened church is to be the principal instrument in converting the world. Remember our example of the Moravians, a hundred year prayer meeting. And look at what God did. It is an awakened church that's the chief instrument for the world. Us. Here's a letter from one of the pastors who was a part, his church and his area was a part of this great awakening. He says this, our congregations had been in a very listless, literally lifeless, floating along mood for many years. And we had all at times felt somewhat discouraged at the small results of our labors for the salvation of souls. And frequently we had anxiously asked, how long, Lord, how long will you hide thyself forever? Still, we had not altogether despaired, but we looked forward in hope that the time, yes, the set time 
of Zion's favor would speedily come. God never disappoints his waiting people. He says, there was, I believe, an impression on the minds of many some two or three years ago. So for two or three years, they prayed for this. That God would speedily visit his people. I myself was so impressed in a sermon I preached in the year 1855, the following expression occurred. There are signs which cause us to look for the breaking of the dawn again upon the cause of God amongst us. The watchmen of Zion are showing symptoms of awakening. The ministry exhibits more life and earnestness than in times past. And I believe there is more praying. The breeze of the morning is already blowing and we may expect the sun to rise before long. It was under these impressions that an appeal was made to the churches to have prayer to the throne of grace. To con continue instant and earnest in prayer, believing prayer for the promised blessing. He says an unusual spirit of prayer subsequently had fallen upon our churches. People have met together in multitudes and have been unable to separate, sometimes spending some six or eight hours together in prayer and singing, at other times employing the whole night even to the dawn in earnest wrestlings with God, interchanged with hymns of praise. Sounds very similar to the Moravian revival, does it not? There's certain things that accompany the revival of God's people. Prayer and praise. And long protracted periods of it. It happened at times that the minister had been interrupted in his public sermons. By the outpourings of one or two full hearts in earnest supplications for mercy. The union prayer meetings are greatly blessed. It is astonishing to witness the multitudes that crowd them. He says, our places of worship are full on such occasions, and there are evident signs of deep impressions being left upon the minds of all present. You well know that the Welsh pulpit is famed for the power of its oratory, and truly we have been favored with shining lights as preachers of the word, men who could wield the Demosthenian power, the sword of the Spirit, and sway the listening multitudes that thronged to be captivated by our eloquence. It was no matter of wonder that such men should command the attentive thousands by the magic of their power, when denouncing ungodly and thundering judgments from heaven or pouring forth the accents of love and mercy to their entraptured audiences. But I am bold to say that the union meetings for prayer, drawn together at the present time, equal the throngs to hear our most eloquent preachers. This is a good sign. Something must come of it. Is it not already a verification of that promise from Scripture that I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. I have been endeavoring to watch and consider attentively the influence that is abroad in these phases. And after very cautious consideration, I cannot account for it except upon the ground that it must be divine influence. They go on to record that young teens would visit castles where those other teens who were Alcoholics and getting in all kinds of trouble there. They go to the castle to pray. They go to where the darkness was and begin to pray. And they would be converted. Believing prayer. And the whole thing spread everywhere. If we believe that this area needs revival. And if we believe 
We need revival. It starts with an awakened church. It's not something that can be programmed. It's not something that you just turn on and off. It begins with an earnest desire in your hearts to go home and say, Lord, awaken me. Forgive me for being so prayerless. Forgive me for setting my mind so often on everything else except your kingdom. And start in me this kind of revival. And when you see that working in other people, get together with them and pray for the other people. And it will spread. It might be two, three years in the making, but church, that's what I want to see here. And that's what I want to see happen in Clovis. One of the things I've often thought, I've never said this to a soul. You know, we lock our doors at night so that our children are safe. And there's a general fear of the company around this area where this church is located. And I've often thought, how cool would it be that that fear would be eradicated by the conversion of those people to Christ? Let's pray for it. Do we believe God can do it? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what Acts 12 teaches us. The state has become a sponsor of persecution now. And the church is still thriving. <laughs> the church is still thriving. Would you join me in prayer? And I'll give you time, before we sing our last song, to start wrestling with this fact in your own heart. To start yielding ourselves more fully to the Lord. Go before him, please. Father, we want to end this time together with a prayer first of confession. And we are not who we should be as your children. Our affections, our time, our energy are so often given more fully to everything else except you. And yet you wait in heaven to bless us. You wait in heaven to pour forth your spirit in such a filling way so as to see the power of God demonstrated on earth. Father, I'm convinced through the study of Scripture that the reason we don't see the working of your Spirit as we see it in the book of Acts is not because you cease to give gifts. It's because the church has ceased to seek you. You, we are told, do not change. We changed. And we don't have a heart and we don't have a mind and we don't have a will to seek you the way we need to. And we're sorry. And we ask you to forgive us. Father, we ask you to be merciful and gracious for the glory of Christ because he secured mercy and grace that we can be. And Father, we ask you 
by that mercy to stir in our hearts an awakening of our shallowness. How we wasted so much time and people are perishing. The church is falling into despair, disunity, shallowness. It's being overrun by our enemy. And we need valiant men as we can look in movies and see these valiant men who pull things together. Father, we need men and women in the church who valiantly stand and strive for truth. And for the church, your bride, where we maintain an unceasing love for those you died for, Lord. We are not who we should be, but your love never ends. And you will never, no, never, no, never leave us or forsake us. And so we ask that you revive us, Lord. Father, may we each, in the closets of our heart and maybe in our home, where only you can see the confessions of our soul, Lord, may we go and deal with you. Father, we we ask not just for confession. We ask that true repentance would happen. True turning from sin, both in action, deed, but in thought. That you'd make your church a holy, awesome spectacle for the world to observe. Full of grace and full of truth, full of light and full of power, an anomaly in this dark world, something that magnetizes them to be drawn to it and ask, what is it that you have that I don't? And you draw many to yourself through the manifestation of your glory and goodness in us. As Paul, we read, prayed, whether by life or by death, My only prayer is that Christ would be magnified. Father, raise leaders up in this church to lead us this way. The work is too great for one or just a few people. It needs to be the body. Help us to be tender to those who are caught in ease. As the scripture says, woe to those in Zion who are at ease. We are in a war. And we are like soldiers playing cards. Forgive us, Father, and change us. As we sing this last song, this great old stalwart of a hymn, Father, fill our hearts with new zeal, fresh vigor, to be zealous for what you've done and accomplished for us in securing the victory already so that we need not fear anything and help us to cease walking in the fear of men and to begin walking in the fear of you. We ask this, Lord, in the name of your Son, who is Lord over all, who is our Savior.